0: Welcome back to the non-standard 14-er podcast, the podcast that brings you everything the route description leaves out about hiking and climbing Colorado's 14-ers. I'm Jacer Jack, and I'm joined here today with my co-host, Short Road Stifler. Hey. My beautiful wife, Tay Jack. Hello, hello. Our guest today is somebody I'm super excited about. He's the author of uh, what is undoubtedly my favorite book of the last year, and that's saying something because we all have done a bunch of reading this last year. Um, So the book is called "The Comfort Crisis" and it's out now on e-reader, on print, and on audiobook. The tagline is uh, "Embrace discomfort to reclaim your wild, happy, healthy self." Our guest today is uh, Professor Michael Easter. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. I got to admit, I mean, I did a ton of reading during COVID, and then uh, Chris saw you on Rogan, and we both jumped on your book. And I have to say, it was my favorite book I've read in the last year. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: awesome. That's cool to hear, man. I yeah, it.
0: no, it was awesome. So sometimes we, we you know, get excited and jump right in and assume that everybody knows who we're talking to or kind of what the basis is. So for, for those of our readers who don't know, which they should, or uh, our, our listeners, <laughs> for those of our listeners who don't know, um, can you kind of give us a brief synopsis of the the book Comfort Crisis?
1: yeah so I mean in one sentence it's essentially about how as the world has gotten more comfortable in a variety of ways I mean think of everyday life it's like every you know we live in temperature controlled homes we don't have to work for our food we don't have to put physical effort into our days most jobs don't Um, we've lost a lot of the things that make us not only healthy but also happy and so to kind of expand on that more, I tell that story through this month-long hunt that I did in the Arctic backcountry. And then from there, um, I traveled the globe looking at sort of different, I guess, experts, seekers, scientists, call them what you will, that are looking at this idea from a variety of lenses, everything ranging from you know, hunger to boredom to physical activity, all these discomforts that we've essentially engineered out of our lives that that used to be um, that used to essentially sort of keep us alive, more or less.
0: So the the basis of the book, which I loved, is it, it is kind of a, a reporting piece, but also, I mean, it reads like a novel. So it's a nonfiction that is as fun to read as a as a fiction, and you tell a great story of a was it thirty three day hunt or thirty five day hunt? Yeah, thirty three total. Um, and 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 as you do that, I love that you're kind of flashing forward or or flashing. I guess it is forward because you did all the reporting after correct yeah to to all the reporting on this so I'd love to kind of hone in on the hunt itself uh, and then we can kind of you know break it into little pieces Um, so what was the biggest lesson for you that you learned personally I mean you talk about screen time you talk about the rucking you talk about hunting Um, for you personally I, I imagine you take away pieces of each was there one that was really particularly impactful for you
1: you know, I think for me, I learned a lot, but I think for me, like the realization was how much things have changed for humans, especially in the last hundred years. Um, so I'll tell you a story when I'm like, so to get to where we were um, for the hunt, I had to take, I think it was like five or six different flights. <laughs> All right. So, but the first one is from Vegas to Seattle and flying sucks right? 737, 747. It sucks. You're in this like little crappy seat, the seat in front of you, like the screen has crappy movies. The coffee sucks. You're cramped. It's too hot. Like flying is it's hell. Right. (laughs) But after I go into the Arctic and I like everything I do takes effort, right? We, we don't like, if I want hot water for crappy instant coffee, I have to hike a mile down to a stream to get it and hike it back up. There's also grizzlies by the screen, right? By the stream, right? If I wanna sit down, it's like ass to ground and the ground is freezing. Just everything is difficult and challenging. And so then when I have to take that flight from Seattle back to Vegas, like what do you think I think of that plane, right? It's like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? Like I'm sitting down in a chair that's soft. I haven't done that in a month. The coffee is warm. I didn't have to work together. <laughs> Right. If I, you know what, I need to go to the bathroom, I can just walk in there and hit this thing and like hot water comes out of my hands. Like it's warm in the plane. Like it's freaking amazing. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that we, I think, take for granted just like how damn good we have it in the grand scheme of time and space. And I don't know, maybe there's some people out there that just get this, you know, and they're just like totally enlightened. I was not one of those people before <laughs> I went up there, but by doing, by spending all that time up there, I think I came back with a newfound appreciation and gratitude for just like how amazing modern life is, to be honest.
0: And, and on a much smaller scale, when we go out, it, I mean, we, you, you talk about that. Uh, is it 25 and three rule?
2: 25. Yeah. Yeah.
0: 25 yeah. and three rule. You can yeah. kind of get a condensed version of that 30 days. And for most of our listeners, Kind of in the in the 14er and, and mountain sphere, three days is a pretty good outing for a peak, and so that's kind of what we're used to. And we actually just had one last week. So can you kind of speak to that a little bit more? The twenty-five and three rule. Yeah,
1: yeah. So when I was when when I was up in uh, the Arctic, you know, like I said, everything is hard and super cold. There's really gnarly weather, and so I think that you know you would think that I was really just like stressed out and on edge the whole time. But the opposite was totally true. It's like, of course, when there's like moments that are dangerous, I get stressed out, but it's like this acute spike. And then it goes back down to low. Like overall, I was just the calmest I'd ever been. Hmm. And so I started looking into the research after I got back, like, why is that? And scientists basically now know that, um, nature is good for us for a variety of reasons, not only physically, but particularly psychologically. And that's what I was interested in. So there's this idea called the nature pyramid or um, as I call it, like the 25, three rule. And it basically tells you how long you should spend in different types of nature and like how often or less. So at the bottom, it basically says the 20 is 20 minutes, three times a week. And that's the type of nature you can find anywhere, like in a park. And that's associated with a lot less stress and more focus. Then five is hours you should spend a month in more sort of like country nature. This is like state park type stuff. You know, a little more wild, but definitely not anything crazy like backcountry or whatever. Um, and that's associated with uh, lower rates of depression and more happiness. And then at the top, there's this idea called the three day effect, and This is like after three days uh, in the backcountry. you do this once a year, people's brains start to ride what are called uh, alpha waves. And these are the waves that are found in experienced meditators. So it tends to be like really calming. And I think people experience this when they go out, right? It's like after the third or fourth day, or maybe it's fifth day, whatever, you're like, oh man, like I feel... I feel a lot calmer. I just feel a lot better. Like I feel like more like satisfied with my life and that's what's happening there. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of it just comes down to the fact that we uh, evolved in nature. You know, our ancestors were outdoorsy in the sense that they freaking lived outside all the time, (laughs) you know? And so those environments still tend to like speak to us.
0: But Chris and I were actually talking about this. We did kind of a, a mini Masogi, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, but we were wondering about this and it would be hard to quantify or, or qualify, but I'm wondering if there's any research behind the difficulty of that three days. Like, can you go out and just lay in a field of wildflowers for three days <laughs> and it would have the same effect as a three day suffer fest in the mountains? Because I've had, f- you know, four car camping days where it's in the backcountry, but yeah you know, we had a 48 hour suffer fest and I feel like I got more from that. So does the difficulty of that three days play into that at all?
1: It probably would. And I would guess that it probably would depend on the person too. Right. So like they don't, um, you know, scientists wouldn't study something that specific. They take uh, a lot of this research. Some of it's been done on vets who do, um, like rafting trips. Some of it's been on, um, grad students and undergrad students who they just take out camping more or less in the middle of nowhere in the backcountry. Mm-hmm. But I would think that, um, you know, one of the things happening here is that generally people, when they are outside, they're usually doing something physically active and doing it consistently. So I would think that that sort of plays into it. Now, that's not the only thing going on for sure. There's a lot of other things happening, so I would guess that, you know, if you get something more out of a sufferfest, fest, it could be because you're just burning off like a lot of energy, mm-hmm. you know, and also you might be the type of person who you really get like something out of that, where some people are like, you know, they're like, no, man, I just want to go sit by the the river and that's going to do it for them. Whereas if you were like, no, you got to hike up to that peak in X amount of time, they'd be like, why are you torturing me? <laughs> you know? So I think it kind of depends.
3: Well, I like that about your book too, about the whole comfort crisis, because like what you just said, someone's comfort bubble may be completely different than someone else's comfort bubble. And so for some of our listeners who are used to doing 14ers and used to doing uh, you know, hard things, that comfort bubble actually becomes a little bit bigger. So you're more comfortable in your car camping. You're more comfortable when you're uh, you know, doing some of those milder things. So maybe that bubble needs to be pushed and that's, what's important about it.
0: Or for somebody yeah. like my mom, love you, mom. But if she were to go spend three days out laying in a field of wildflowers, but had to sleep in a tent for three nights in a row, that would be hugely out of her comfort. Right. <laughs> um, so that would probably still have the same effect on somebody like her. So you're saying it's that part of it is entirely subjective, but either way you get the benefit after three days and that's kind of the time period.
2: Yeah, it seems to be. Yep. And that's from what the Finland study or, and they use what the, let me ask another question. Have you taken an RAT test yourself? Uh, no, I haven't
1: actually taken one.
2: Really? So we were hiking the, uh, last week and we were asking each other those three remote association tests to see how good. Yeah. We can you sp- yeah, explain how they measure creativity and basically measure why people are more creative after days in, in nature? Yeah.
1: What, say that again.
2: Can you, can you explain the RAT test? Oh
1: yeah, so they, they basically um, it's a it's a basic create test of creativity. So they it's a, it's remote association test. So it's sort of figuring out like can you come up with creative ideas more or less? And what they found is that after three days, creativity rises too. So they tested people. This was a study on I think people who were in Outward Bound. And they tested half the group, like at the trailhead. So theoretically they would have like, you know, been busted in and they would have been on their phone the whole time in the bus. And they give them this RIT test. And then they um, test another group after three days in the wild. And the group who had been spent three days in nature did 50% better, which is pretty significant.
2: So we, we had a small study last week. We had I asked Jace the remote association test was dust, fish, and cereal, and you yeah. just thought the, the 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 combination. And we didn't. He, he got it on the second day. Yeah. So it kind of spoke to maybe maybe he just thought for a while, but maybe he was more creative on the second day in, in on nature. It, it,
0: it's hard to do a controlled test like out of our <laughs> cell phone as we're hiking, but it, we seem to be able to get the more difficult level ones on day three of this hike, which I'm like. It makes total sense like this book is yeah coming to life on this hike it was
2: pretty cool yeah
1: yeah it's pretty uh, and it, it's definitely like a tricky test like the three words and trying to figure out the common denominator is definitely tricky
2: <laughs> yeah
0: so i'd love to dive into this idea of masogi because i think that's something that's really going to speak to our our listeners a lot at you know 14ers crowd is a crowd that just inherently loves sufferfest Mm-hmm. And we have known this to be true. We've, we've every year planned something that's difficult that, you know, is outside of our comfort zone to kind of push that boundary, but we've never really had a name for it and research to back that up. So I know we're asking you to be redundant with a lot of the stuff that's in the book, but for our listeners that don't know, can you describe that a little bit more, what a Masogi is and, and why it's proven to be good for us?
1: Yeah. So I heard about this idea of Masogi from this guy, whose name's uh, Marcus Elliott. And he is, he's definitely a little bit out there. Like he's been going to Burning Man since way back in the day. He used to count, he counted cards to get himself through college, but he is also super brilliant. So he graduated from Harvard Medical School and he decided that he didn't want to be a doctor, like a typical MD. He wanted to totally like revolutionize sports science. And this was in the early 2000s and he ends up totally doing it so he like his first job he took it was with the patriots and he they were a team that had all these hamstring injuries he dropped their hamstring injuries like a crazy amount they started winning all these super bowls obviously tom brady and belichick helped too but if you don't have anyone to throw the ball to then you're gonna be in a pickle right Um, so then from there he he takes this job with the mlb and now he has this place that is called p3 and it's in there's one in santa barbara one in atlanta he uses basically like deep data on movement and ai and all this crazy techie number and figure stuff to quantify movement and injury risk and basically find like where are the perils in your game but also where are the promises like where are things that you're really good at that we should try and like get you better at that'll give you an edge so I basically told you that to say he's like this numbers guy, right? This super numbers genius. But he also knows that like what improves human performance and just humans in general can't always be measured. So to get to those sort of unmeasurable things that, you know, we know some like in his field, it's like some athletes just have a gear. It's like you give this person the ball at the end of the game, right? Um, but also the average people have that too, right? So to get to that, he does this idea called Misogi. And the idea is that once a year, you're going to go out and do one really, really hard thing. And he defines that it uh, hard is basically a 50-50 shot of finishing, like a true 50-50 shot. If you think, if you like give it everything you have and you execute perfectly, then it's a coin flip, more or less. So the two rules are that it has to be really hard. And then number two is that you can't die. So you got to be safe. Don't be dumb about it, right? Yeah. And, um, so the idea though, behind this, and they've done all kinds of kooky things to, when they do these, they've done things like carrying an 85 pound boulder under the Santa Santa Barbara channel for like five miles. Um, so one guy would dive down, carry, come up, another guy would dive down, carry, come up and on and on and on. Um, but they've done similar things to like what you're talking about, just like pick a peak that you can see that's really far away. And like, do you think we could get to that today? I don't know. It's like, all right, let's find out, you know? Mm. And the idea is that they're mimicking these challenges that humans used to face just naturally in the past that our environment would naturally show us, you know, cause as we evolved, we had to do like challenging stuff in nature all the time. This could be stuff like uh, moving from summering to wintering grounds, right? This could be like some epic hunt that we had to go on. Like we're out of food. We got to, we got to go on this crazy hunt, whatever it might be. And now that the world is generally pretty safe, pretty comfortable, we've removed these challenges from our lives. We're no longer, we no longer get these moments where we learn something about ourselves and our potential. Cause that's really what we would get from these. It's like, once you would do that, you'd come out the other side. You might, you're probably going to face a point both in Masogi and both in this challenge, this like natural challenge where you go, I don't know if I can finish this. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to do it. I want to quit, but by not quitting and keeping going, you can kind of look back and be like, Oh, well I thought that was my edge, but I'm past it. So, you know, where else in my life am I possibly selling myself short, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's what they're trying to get at with Masogis. gives you this point where, you know, you think your potential is like this big. Well, by putting yourself in a position where you're going to be pushed to the edges of that. You're going to find that it's actually bigger than you thought. And, you know, that's all good to think about in theory in your head, but you don't really understand that until you actually go out and do something that proves that to you. It's one thing for me to be like, you could do that. It's quite another for you to actually go do it. Like what's going to be a better teacher. Right. That's so good. That's so good.
0: And that, It's when you come back from a trip where you've done something like that, like you said, it's not numbers based. It's really, really hard to quantify, but you know, in your heart that something's different. People, you know, how, how was that trip? It was really, really good. And and you don't really know why, but it's because you kept pushing. It's like reversing the comfort creep, right? Like you're pushing that out, pushing that out.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think you you and I were talking about the masogis on the way down. You had a really good question.
3: Yeah. So for people who lack the creativity of carrying a boulder underwater <laughs> across the Santa Barbara channel, yeah. um, how do you, like what's some advice about how do you make a good masogi? Because I think we also just as there's comfort creep you kind of sell yourself short a lot. So how do you create a good Misogi that you're for sure going to be 50% chance that you finish, but not totally sure, you know?
1: Yeah. So yeah, the, like two of the guidelines are that it should be kind of quirky. And the reason for that is because you can't compare it to other people because a lot of times, you know, people will do stuff for the FTK on Strava and... Or Instagram.
0: Instagram.
1: <laughs> yeah, or Instagram. Yeah totally fine but now you're not really doing this for you you're doing it for other people right and your perception by other people so you really want this to be like for you so picking something quirky allows it to be you you just can't like compare to artificial metrics right it's like there's not any setting on Strava to be like how long did it take for these people to carry this boulder underwater right like <laughs> you
0: know i've actually been frustrated with that even just with rucking that there's not a setting on strava to put how heavy your ruck was yeah like i promise this wasn't just a hike like i had a 30-pound yeah. ruck and i'm still like fighting that kind of pride yeah. a little bit yeah,
3: the attaboy like i need that too i'm yeah. like oh it's a yeah. 20-pound
1: ruck
0: i promise this wasn't just a three-mile hike that took me you know <laughs> right forever to complete
1: yeah exactly it's like you gotta build an algorithm you jerk yeah. um, so how about i hope uh, you're listening Yeah. And then so the other point is that you also don't, you know, blast about it on Instagram or whatever, because, again, it's for you. So when I think about like making one, it's like and finding that 50 percent, it's like what actually makes you like afraid where you're like, Hmm. "Mm, I don't know, I don't know. So, for example, um, like I hate the water. I grew up in a desert. I live in a desert now. I hate the water. The idea that like doing something in water, that scares the shit out of me. Hmm. That probably means I should do a Masogi in the water. (laughs) Nice.
3: Okay. I love that. I think that's great.
1: Yeah. So if like you, I don't know, like you guys have a 14 er podcast, you guys probably know that land pretty well, probably decent at hiking. What do you suck at? What's something that's just going to be totally like, you're going to have to figure out your shit as you go. That's great
3: advice. I I love that. And I think
0: that's particularly relevant for the Colorado crowd where you have so many elite athletes here and so many people that are looking for exceptionalism and to be the first at this or that or the fastest and to just go out and suffer for the sake of suffering and have no, you know, really nothing to show for it, except for what's, what's in here and what's yours is, is huge. Cause I think people here are really okay with the suffer fest, but it's like we've said for Instagram. So I think that piece especially for our audience is particularly relevant. Um, Cause I don't even know that I could say that what we did was a, a mini Masogi. Cause I posted about it. So there goes that out the window. So we'll have to redo it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and even like one of my friends from high school texted me and he was like, Hey, I read your book. I want to do a Masogi. And he goes, <laughs> camping alone be a Misogi? And i like, scare the shit out of you and he's like dude totally scares the shit out of me there's animals in the woods i'm like all right man sounds like that might be a masogi for you oh, so
0: here's another question for Masogis. can you do it with somebody else or does it yeah. Have
1: you alone? yeah totally okay you can with it. yeah you have to be careful that you're kind of relatively about the same level like you couldn't um like, for example, you know, I couldn't do a running one with some ace ultra marathoner because like I just our levels of 50 percent are way off. You know,
3: I was just going to say that is true for some of the people that I hike with where yeah. I'm, it might violate rule number two, where I might die.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly.
0: Don't want to rule number two. We can't participate <laughs> on your misogies,
3: right? Yeah. And maybe you would help me not die on my own. Masogi, yeah, maybe perfect.
2: But this is the same discussion of like the different people's bubbles, different people's edges. You say in the book, it's a moving target. So you need to kind of tailor your masogi to like, I think you said like if, if you can run five miles, well then maybe if it's a masogi. if you run a 20 mile race, but if you're already running 20 miles, a 20 mile race is not a misogi for you.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this is like, um, so I think this is where it's also something you're not, like training for it a ton. It's like when people today decide they're going to go do something hard, like, let's say I'm an average person. And I'm like, I'm going to run a ultra marathon of 50 miles. Like I'm probably going to do some really complicated training plan where my, it doesn't become, can I do this? It becomes what's my time going to be? I know I'm going to do it, you know? And so today there's an important part there where we don't really fail at things, especially outdoors. So we have this like outsized fear of failing because we just we choose stuff we know we're gonna be able to do and be halfway decent. You know, so if you if you can get like a reframing of like fear, it's like okay, so you didn't finish your Masogi. The world didn't fall apart. But guess what? You still got way farther than you thought you would. Mm -hmm. You know, then you can take that back into your normal life of whatever it might be, whatever used to freak you out. And that'll probably be a little easier. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, speaking in front of a crowd is no problem at all. But like, you can think back to that and be like, oh yeah, I have this gear that I didn't really realize was there. And I think I'm going to survive this, you know?
0: So the benefits of the masogi don't come in the completion. Like if you have a 50, 50 shot of completing, it's not a 50, 50 shot that you'll get the benefits out of it. Like hundred percent certainty. If you give it your all, you're getting the benefits out of
1: it. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, if you like, let's say you started doing masogis annually, if you completed every one, that tells me that you are not doing the 50, 50. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. a
3: masogi. Yeah.
1: Should be roughly every other year, so to speak. Yeah. About every <laughs> other year. Yeah. <laughs> If you Google Masogi
2: though, you don't get your definition. You get like Google images of people in waterfalls.
1: Yeah. So it's based off this like ancient, uh, Japanese myth and this, um, practice that they do in Aikido a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was named by the guy I told you about Marcus. And he took the name from a guy who was, uh, one of his friends from Harvard med school, who was like an Olympic level, uh, judo athlete. And this idea of like, uh, Masogi had come from like this just bounced around like weird little crowds, but it, it originates off a of Japanese myth where this character ends this journey through hell by coming out of this cavern and bathing in water that sort of purifies him from the outside world, more or less. So that's kind of the the general idea is like you're getting purified in a reframing of the outside world from Masogi.
2: And so do you plan a Masogi every year now? Uh, I do. Yeah. So what's 2020? No, you can't oh, tell can't us. No, yeah. What was You're-
0: 2000s then What well, was last year. You already spilled the beans on Rogan broke the rule. Huh? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I did break the rule on Rogan. Um, the last one I did was a running one. Um, I'd never run 16 miles. And so I did, um, I ended up running like 48 and I'll talk about that one cause I've already talked about it and it's, you know, in the, in the interest of, turning people on to the idea and helping them figure out what it is. But yeah, so that was that one. And this next one will involve water, I think, right. unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. So yeah.
0: back to the hunt, would you say the, the 33 days of the hunt itself was, was a masogi, or was the masogi not to give away the end, but kind of that final piece or where does that work into your
1: hunt? I think it was. And I think it was like kind of the idea of masogi like it's more like the idea of and what you get from it right like kind of a shift in how you view the world how you view yourself your you know your place in the world i think that's kind of what i got out of the hunt and just sort of like a reframing of things it's like the point you know was not to have a freezer full of meat although (laughs) i did get that right the point was like I'm going to go out there and I'm probably going to learn something about myself. I don't know what that's going to be, mm-hmm. but I think there's something there. Right. And I want to like explore that thing and see what that is. Totally. Did you have
2: like a watershed moment? Like you can nail what day of the 33 day trip that you really kind of felt you
1: changed. Um, I think it was kind of like a gradual shift. I mean, it, it was interesting because when I first got up there, I'm like looking at my, you know, my watch I had up there with the date and just thinking like, holy crap, that thing's going to turn 33 times. Like (laughs) what the hell have I got myself into? And then sort of my mindset started to change after a certain point where I'm like, I'm not necessarily like looking forward to just coming home. You know, it was like, I wanted to be out there and I really enjoyed it. And it was like one of those where like, I missed, um, I mean, I miss my wife. I miss my dogs. And I look forward to seeing them. But at the same time, it wasn't like I just want to get home. It was like, man, I could stay out here forever, especially if you just sent the wife and dogs up here, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of like an interesting shift.
0: And I imagine that wasn't on like day three, like that probably took some time because oh, yeah. kind of the first night or maybe it was the first night or early in the trip when You had that storm running, your teepee teepee was about to fly away, and I'm like, man, I'd like call for the airplane then. Like, I think that's (laughs) pretty tough, but I bet you were feeling the same. So, how far into that did you go from, man, I want to quit to, okay, this is bliss. Bring my wife and dog up here and let's live up here.
1: I don't know. That's a good question. At least a week, probably like two weeks, I would say. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but like, and it's, it's interesting that that, that happened so early on the trip with like almost losing the, like our shelter in the wind and that being such a gnarly night. Cause then all of a sudden it was like, well, we survived that. Mm. What else we got, <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden it's not quite as bad. And we had little, I mean, there was definitely days that were like super gnarly. Like one was probably below, I think it was negative 20 with the wind chill and we woke oh. up in our and our boots were like, I mean, when I say frozen, I mean like a rock, like frozen, like, like it took 10 minutes to get our boots on. And then we had to like trudge out across this, like we had the river crossing. Um, We had to trudge like through this swamp and it just kept getting colder, you know, luckily, I mean, I'm glad that I invested heavily in boots. Let's just say that. But um, I mean, we got pretty far from camp and like, I remember having this moment hiking back where I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so exhausted. Like, I just want to like stop. And, you know, you can do that in most things. I mean, like, even if I'm like on a hike in Vegas in the desert, if I'm just like, I'm going to stop, I can pull out my phone and I can call the fire department. Now <laughs> that'll be a huge pain in their ass and I'll have a bill, <laughs> Right, but I can do that. <laughs> right. Uh, whereas out there it was like, Oh, if I don't keep putting one foot in front of the other, I'm going to freeze to death.
3: I will die.
1: Yeah. Wow. And so I think that was like a weird kind of, you know, messed with my head a little bit, but at the same time, it's like we get back and I don't know, you kind of learn something about yourself.
3: Hmm. Wow.
0: So is that now your new uh, threshold or bar, so to speak? Or do you think if you went back and did the same thing, you would experience those same discomforts? Or would you be like Donnie, who was just hardened and gung ho the whole time? <laughs>
1: I don't think, well, I wouldn't be Donnie, but I would be closer (laughs) to him than I was when I, the last trip, I think, for sure, because you learn a lot. and It's even like, you know, even going, I usually do like an annual uh, backpacking trip with some of my friends from home. I grew up in Utah, so we'll go up like to the wind rivers in Wyoming or just wherever, and they're great dudes, but having come back from Alaska, it's like, you realize people overthink and over plan and over pack and over everything on these types of things. It's like, guys, let's just go into the woods, bring enough food that you won't die. Like we don't need 70. We, we all don't need all this like stuff, you know, to go up there. So it's kind of like reframed that like, we're going to be fine. We don't need 25 gallons of grizzly bear mace. I promise. We're gonna <laughs> <be there. Yeah. laughs>
0: Or uh then there's Donnie who just goes out with a wool sweater and a rifle and a teepee like he's he, yeah dude he's kind of on the extreme
1: <laughs> yeah he's hysterical um great guy to go up there with though because I mean he's kind of seen it all so if you know if I was with someone who was freaking out I might be like oh you know maybe I should be freaking out right now but he's just like. Eh, whatever, you know, like he's just no care at all about bears and that kind of stuff. He's just like, yeah, there's, you know, they're not going to charge three of us. They're just not, gonna <laughs> us, you know, Maybe. Like, right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Do you use like what you've learned when you're writing? Like if if, if you learned that creativity gets better as your three days in, in, in nature or meditating, do you use those same techniques when you're trying to write yourself now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely use the idea of boredom. Um, So in the book, I write about how boredom, you know, it's this evolutionary discomfort that basically just told us to do something, that whatever we were doing with our time, the return on investment had worn worn thin. And But nowadays, it's like we have all these devices that sort of hijack that, and we kind of default to whatever the easiest thing is. It's like immediately when people feel any sort of discomfort or boredom, there's an easy way out. And it's like a phone, it's a TV, it's whatever. But we also know that times where you're bored, um, can boost creativity and also just give your brain a rest. So, you know, having known that I now, Oh, I used to walk a lot. Um, I take just like long walks, but I would often take, um, a podcast. I love podcasts, still listen to them all the time, obviously. But, um, I now like 20 minutes a day. We'll just go for a walk, totally disconnected and use it as time to like think. And even when I do, um, when I do write, I sort of have time to do it every morning when it's like totally silent. I wake up pretty early, totally silent. Um, I don't have music on or anything. It's just like silent. I'm totally alone except for my dog and he just lays there. Doesn't do anything. Um, (laughs) And that's been, I mean, that's sort of like my creative window of the day. Cause I know nothing's usually, usually, I mean, the dog wakes me up at like 4.30 in the morning. So by like seven something I've gotten like three hours in, and that's kind of like the the money period. So that's when
2: you write in the morning.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Can, can you tell if like, if you're on your phone too much, like you can't, you don't, you're kind of creatively blocked or you're anxious versus days where you kind of get in nature and get away from all that clutter.
1: Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, feel, I think it's like really the pace that you, you notice, like you're, you've got this pace. It's like you get tight and like things are just happening quick and you're like always whatever. I mean, I struggled with that a little bit when the book came out. Cause like I was on some like relatively big podcasts and like people reach out to say really great things, which is amazing. You know, it's like, but at the same time I look at my screen time and I'm like, holy shit. Hmm. well, I'm a damn hypocrite, <laughs> you know, but, it's but my wife was also like, you're going to be on your phone a lot for when the book comes out, but it's eventually going to, you know, subside. Mm-hmm. But I did notice like, especially in the days when I was on it a lot, just like, you know, talking to people or responding to people that I just felt more frazzled and a little bit burned out and sort of like exasperated. It's hard to focus and pay attention. And that's because I think Um, phones do a really good job, uh, fracturing our attention and focus. You know, it's like, how often do people just sit and focus on one thing for more than like 15 minutes without looking at their phone? Not as often, not often. Right. So, um, I think we're cued to like, kind of always be searching for the next thing, even more so attention spans are down. We know that from the research.
2: So do you put your phone away when you're writing then? Is your phone hidden?
1: Yeah. I just put it in another room. I usually put it on a charger. I don't charge it like overnight. That way it's like, I have to put it on that charger.
3: (laughs) Oh, that's a clever tip.
1: Yeah.
0: So it was kind of, kind of crazy timing. I actually had an opportunity to do a three day silent retreat a little while back. And it was actually when I was on the tail end of your book Uh and allowed myself to read your book. But other than that, I took a fast from my phone and everything on the outside world, social media And when you you meditate, I'm sure you all have heard the analogy of like a waterfall. You're sitting behind the waterfall and the water, are your thoughts, and they just come rushing over and it's okay to, to have them. You just acknowledge them and watch them, watch them go. And after three days away from my phone. Um,
3: and not talking to anyone. I mean,
0: yeah, and not talking to anyone. I was literally like, I watched a deer eat for an hour and I laid in a hammock and watched the leaves move. And it was really uncomfortable at first. Then I'm reading in your book about you reading your cliff bar wrapper and counting yeah. the ants. I'm like, this is like me right now. This is awesome. By yeah. the end of that third day with the waterfall analogy, it had slowed down to a trickle.
1: Yeah.
0: I have like one or two conscious thoughts per minute versus like three simultaneously every second. You know, it was a, attributed to a lot of different things, but I think a huge part of that was the time away from my
2: phone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, I think that electronics and just general, I think the way that we now live is just really sped up compared to what it used to be, Mm -hmm. you know? And I was talking about this with a friend who, um, who's in the book. He's the guy who did all my like kind of fitness program programming to get me as close to ready as I could have been for Alaska. And he just talked about, you know, we were both talking about how there is with, Something like email or text, there is an expectation that you will respond within a certain time period. And it, you put like pressure on yourself, like, oh, I have to respond to this now because if I don't, the person will see me a certain way or something or whatever. You know what I mean? So I think that there's like email comes in, you're like, oh, got to jump. Yeah. Text comes in, oh, shit. Got to respond, you know. But I think that really to fix that, we're gonna need like a complete societal shift
2: yeah. where
1: it's like the expectation changes that yeah, I'll respond within like a week. Hmm. You know. Wow. Yeah. And people are really accessible. I mean, think of like if I wanted to hit you up, I could probably find your phone number, I could find your email, I could probably find you on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Like there's so many different ways that people can contact us now, which On one hand is good, on the other, it's bad. And that's kind of one of the messages of the book is that, you know, like all the stuff we have in our life is amazing, but it also comes with downsides that need to be offset.
0: Sure. I wonder if we're going to see a a backlash, like the pendulum has swung completely this way, and now it's starting to go this way because I have seen research that suggests that the Gen X and boomers are actually more addicted to their phones now than Gen Z, even Contrary to their jokes, um, I really think that the younger generation is aware of the, you know, detrimental side effects of that. And they're starting to make a change, at least from what I've seen. Do you find that to be true?
1: I think you I think you totally will. I think that, um, you know, what's interesting is like thinking back to something like television. So when television gets really goes at scale in the 50s, it almost happened like uh, smartphones did, where I think probably going to get the specific years wrong so bear with me but i think in 1950 one in every 10 households had a television by the end of the decade nine in ten oh. had, a, had a tv so we adopted this thing fast we went from zero hours of television in the 40s to people watched an average of like six hours of television a day at the by the end of the 50s so a lot like smartphones right it's like all of a sudden, no one really has an iPhone. Then all of a sudden, every single person has an iPhone we all spend a ton of time on it. What you saw happen is people started, especially with the programming around television, it was all just kind of horseshit. It was like junk food for the mind, kind of like what we have on our cell phones now. Mm -hmm. And people started to rebel against this. So think of the 60s generation, right? People rebel against like corporatism. And so what happened? Did people stop watching TV? No, what happened is that TV stations and TV programmers, they're smart. They realized they were losing viewers. So what, what happened? We got smart shows. We got things like 60 Minutes. We got things like MASH. We got things that um, were more like cultural TV shows. So really TV just adapted and we watched it about the same amount of time with it. So I could potentially see that happening too. Where all of a sudden smartphone, you know, like app makers are going, Oh, people want to slow down. Well, how about we invent an app where you, I don't know, you meditate with it. We'll call it calm.
0: (laughs)
3: That is a really good point. Or
0: Yeah. With the advent of all the, like the screen time thing, wasn't always a notification on the Apple, the iOS, but now I get something every Sunday that shows me my screen time, you know? And
1: so, I mean, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because like I would argue it probably, I would think pretty I feel pretty strongly like someone will be better off if they spend less time on Twitter and more on an app like Mm calm. So maybe that is a good thing at the same time. It's still a lot of time on our phones. Sure.
3: I've often thought that it would be nice to go back to house phones.
1: Oh yeah. So that
3: when you're home, you can be reached. Um, but when you're at work or when you're hiking with your spouse or when you're out walking the dog, like not everybody can get a hold of you at every second of every day.
1: Yeah, I know. And I
3: remember being a kid and, you know, I was part of the generation that had house phones and you, yeah. you weren't around. You weren't around.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: totally. I even have had that in the mountains where like my mom, because she's so worried about me and what we do, got me an in-reach for Christmas one year. Yeah, really? Now she expects me to touch base (laughs) love you mom again (laughs) every time we're back at camp when i'm on the summit like and that's that's good but it kind of defeats the purpose of being off the grid and that's an important safety measure but that kind of that's why you go out a little bit to to unplug so
1: yeah i'm with you yeah like i had one of those uh we had one of those things up there um but really just used it for you know if we needed to communicate with the pilot whatever so
2: Going back to the the, what the twenty minutes, five hours, three days. You don't get that benefit though if you're with your phone, right? Don't you write in the book that?
1: Yeah, you don't. You don't. Um, I always forget to say that. (laughs) Yeah, it all gets canceled out. You're on your phone because your attention is not on nature. You're not really taking in nature. You're taking in whatever it is, cat videos, you know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> this might be a little nitpicky, but inevitably we'll get questions about this. So what if you're in airplane mode and using your iPhone for photos and for a downloaded map on Gaia or something?
1: Yeah, so that that's one where I had one researcher say that even photos are bad, but huh. um, that's one where I'm like, you know take photos. Like photos are fine. I think it's more just like, you know, how much oh, are we going to like, th- yeah, like I'm not too worried about photos. Um, I'm also not too worried about someone using it to not get lost and die. <laughs> you know, like
3: it's like a principle of what you're doing kind of.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, theoretically you could just take a, I think that really the trick though, is that if you have a phone and you're going to use it as a, as a camera, like the pole will probably be there to like, oh, I'm just going to take it out of airplane mode. So I think you got to be safe there. And I mean, I guess you could just use like a, an in-reach and like a traditional, I don't a, a normal camera, you know, I, I assume they still sell those, but um, yeah, I, I have heard that there's some downsides at the same time. Like for example, when I go running out in the desert, I always take my phone and I do keep it in airplane mode because it's like, You know, if I were to break a leg or something, I want to be able to call for safety, but I just don't really, you know, and I'll take some photos with it in airplane mode. I'm not too worried.
0: So I know we're running low on time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of broach the topic of rucking. Uh, mm-hmm. because after reading your book, you make such a compelling case that as a group, I think we've spent a collective thousand dollars on <laughs> go rock.com. Uh,
3: I hope you're getting some not, kickback. Yeah, yeah.
0: Not that we don't get enough time with heavy backpacks as it is, but, um, we're like, man, this like totally makes sense. And, um, yeah. So, so can you give our listeners the reader's digest version of why rucking is so awesome?
1: Yeah. So, uh, um, I actually sold so my wife. I've uh, worked at Men's Health for a long time, and so always doing weird exercise stuff. And my wife makes fun of me for it. And I actually sold her on rucking. So nice. <laughs> that, that, that is the great accomplishment of my life. Um, so the yeah. So rucking. If you look at the human body and why it's built the way it is, um, it's to it's for two things. So the first thing is that we are really good at running long distances relatively slowly in the heat. So humans are pretty athletically pathetic compared to other animals. We are slow. We don't run fast. Um, We also can't really like juke that quickly. Um, We're not that strong. So an example of this is like, I don't know, take my dog. It's uh, I have two dogs. One of them's like half pit bull. I can never, I could never beat her in a foot race. She will always outjuke me. I could not try and grab her. And if we are playing tug of war, I mean, she can kick my ass and she's like 55 pounds. Okay. So <laughs> humans are like, whatever, but we are really good at running long distances in the heat. And so for example, if I were to take her for a run out in the desert on a hot day, she's going to, be down and out in like a mile. And I'll be like, see you later. Right. That's how all other four legged animals are. So we would use this to our advantage. Uh, as we evolved, we'd use it for hunting. We would do this thing called persistence hunting, where we run down animals slowly, but surely over miles and miles, eventually the animal would topple over from heat exhaustion and we would spear it. And then this is the second thing we're good at is that we would carry it back to camp. All right. So we would butcher it and we would carry it. We're the only animals that can carry weight an appreciable distance, heavy weights and appreciable distance. Every other animal has to um, grab like stuff with its mouth and that, like, you know, like a puma can maybe pull a pull prey up into a tree, but they're not like carrying it across miles. And so that's this is why we're built the way we are. It's why we um, can we have sweat glands everywhere, why we have like these long two legs, big butt muscles, why we can like, um, air gets cooled before it hits our lungs by our noses, uh, etc. So I go to Harvard, and the anthropologist who basically discovered that um, distance running was was one of our sort of killer apps, um, I met with him. And I met with him because I wanted to talk to him about the caring part, because Mm -hmm there isn't a ton of research around it, but I kind of had this epiphany as I was like carrying the caribou back to camp. Like, Oh, if you like get the animal, you got to carry this damn thing. And how did that, you know, shape us? And it's, it's definitely equally, if not more important, it's probably like the main thing that we did as we evolved because running was really reserved for these hunts. But like, especially when you think of uh, the physical activity that women did, a lot of it was gathering, which you go out a far distance and you're like gathering like tubers and all this stuff. And then you got to haul it back to camp. And the Harvard guys think that the activities that we evolved to evolve to do tend to give us a unique benefit. Like they're uniquely good for us, you know, and a lot of people still run, like running is a popular thing that people do for exercise, but it's like, how many people just carry heavy stuff as a workout, you know, not many, and so I found one group that uh, that does, and it's special forces soldiers. And so this idea of rucking, which is like carrying heavy weight in a backpack for distance, is the foundation of military training, special forces training, and the guys, uh, the men and women who own uh, Go Ruck, the, their founder is a former Green Beret. They're trying to put rucking uh, at scale. So they make these amazing backpacks and sell weights that you put in them. And it's very simple. It's just like throw on a weighted backpack and go for a walk. Hmm. And the burns like two to three, two to three times the calories of walking, um, gives you cardio benefit fits equivalent to running. Um, it gives you strength benefits, which running doesn't come with. And it's also importantly, it has a super low injury risk. So running's injury rate is super high. It's like 20 to 70% across any given year. Um, But rucking has basically the same injury rate as walking, which is like very, very minimal. So it's this thing that I advocate, like we should all be doing. It's going to make us a lot more fit. And we also know that fitness is one of the best ways to prevent essentially all the stuff that kills us nowadays, chronic diseases.
0: And it makes you really good
2: at uh, 14ers. It makes it less painful, I should say. Yes, totally, totally. (laughs) Quick question. You've been rucking. Could you do 50 miles ruck in 20 hours? That's one of the go ruck events in Denver here in August.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do that. Yeah.
2: With 30 pounds? 20 pounds. 20. Oh, that's, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely with 20. Yeah, so I did one of their 24-hour events. Maybe like... That was a while ago, maybe like seven years ago, about, yeah, probably seven years ago. And I think it was, ended up being, it was unplanned, but it ended up being 50 miles. <laughs> and it was, um I think it was at like 35 pounds with carrying the, uh, they make you carry other random shit wow. they find. So
2: you, you, you finished it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh
3: my gosh. Wow. In August.
0: Well, let me, yeah. Get me in wow. shape for my okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> The star course, though, I think what you're talking about is the star course. I've heard those are really cool. I'd like to do one. Um, yeah, you could definitely do that because, I mean, 20 hours is is a long time, you know? Like, you don't have to have a crazy pace. You can have, like, rest breaks and all that kind of stuff. Nice. So you probably do that.
0: 2.2 to 2.5 hours. So that's, it's like, a three-mile-an-hour mile pace with some yeah. breaks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'd if you be did three miles, it'd still be further than we've ever crazily yeah. wrecked.
1: Yeah. yeah, you should do it. <laughs> Will we see you there? <laughs> coming out to Denver? Denver, I do want to do one. I do want to do one. Well,
3: if you ever do, let us know. Yeah, let
1: us hey, know at Climate 14er. We can make you yeah. stop
2: here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can just stand at the top and gasp for air coming from... Perfect.
2: <laughs> Michael, when you were writing your book and you're in Word and you wrote the word rewilding, did did Word say that was misspelled? Is that a word, rewilding?
1: It's totally not a, a real world. <laughs> now it is, though. Now it is. They were like, "Did you mean rewiring?" <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> that's awesome. We totally made that? it up. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I think
0: that's. I'm glad to see there's so so much research in, in books out now about basically how getting in touch with how humans used to live is so good for us. Um, yeah, I th-
1: I think there's a lot we can draw from that. I mean, I don't think that it's like a miracle cure, and I think we have to be careful too with like the evidence. Cause a lot of times people draw conclusions that maybe aren't accurate. Like, um, I mean, especially in the world of diet, you know, like people will say, Oh, like you should eat an all meat diet. Cause that's what caveman eat, ate. It's like, no, they didn't, you know, like very, very few did. So I think we have to be careful with that. But I do think that generally it really can and should inform a lot of the way we think about health today. Awesome.
3: that's awesome and I I will just say as a plug for your book it reads it's so fun like your voice in the book is so fun the book is so it's a page turner it's not just this you know I think some books can be really heavy facts and not a whole lot of fun stories around it so you just had this awesome balance of you know I feel like I already knew you before we got on this podcast it's,
0: okay. it's one of those that like uh, you would you would laugh out loud and then like have a lump in your throat in the same chapter Sure, yeah. and then at the end of the chapter feel like you had something tangible to take away and a lot of the books in this genre are kind of yeah rah, rah, go get them and facts and all this and you feel pumped but like this actually gives you tangible takeaways Loved it. Um, you know we're all reducing our stream- screen time we're spending more time outside we're getting bored and we're all rucking because of it so um, I love yeah. it can't yeah. thank you enough for the book and for your time today and Uh, it's been a real honor to have you on thanks michael
1: that was that was the goal to get people out doing cool stuff and maybe a little less screen time so i'm glad it took i'm glad you guys enjoyed it and it was super fun coming on i really enjoyed it
2: fun for us too awesome well yeah thanks for coming on small podcast compared to (laughs) yeah i know we
3: feel so honored
2: that's cool